Hello everyone, I'm Ali. And I'm Guy. And I would like to welcome you to the Fancy Lab Code Guild podcast sponsored by SciFind, a scientific collaboration network. Here, we interview scientists from across the board to tell us about scientific culture, their life, and their life's work. It's an open space where members of the scientific community can talk about information beyond their publications. Today, our guest is Dr. Christina Tetiosian. I'm excited and lucky to have her for our first episode. She's a scientific rock star. She's a PhD molecular biologist, graduated from USC's Keck School of Medicine with a wild amount of expertise related to CRISPR. She got her own educational platform called CRISPR Classroom, where she focuses on teaching advanced biological techniques to learners of the world. She's an LA native, a fellow Trojan, Trojan in the house. Chris, welcome, pleasure to have you. Thank you, pleasure to be here. So let's get started with your origin story. I wanna know about your past, like, uh, where, how did you become, or who, like, how did you become the person you are today as a scientist? Uh, I mean, that's quite a dense question. I'll start from, I suppose, since I was a kid, I was always fascinated by the natural world. Mm. Um, I had snakes growing up as a child. I would collect <laughs> lizards. And so I was kind of the kid that would put that reptile wow. in front of your face <laughs> until you went eek. But it was my passion. And <clears throat> Excuse me. That continued up until I actually went to uh, my undergrad studies at UC Davis. Oh, wow. Where That's funnily, a great it's a great school. Yeah. <clears throat> and one of their best programs is actually in entomology. So the study mm. of insects. Mm. And so mm. I kind of just fell into that discipline by taking some insect classes. One in particular struck my interest, which was a entomology art science fusion class. Oh, wow. So I was actually in the ceramics studio <laughs> working and learning Wait, about what? insects. Wow. And so from there, I decided without a doubt my degree in undergrad was going to be entomology. So I spent three years basically chasing around bugs with a net, looking at them under the microscope, trying to identify what species they were, and then mm -hmm. conducting all sorts of research experiments yeah. regarding insects, as well as a phenomenon that's called the disease triangle, yeah. which I found particularly interesting, which is connecting the insect to the uh, virus or pathogen that it might transmit and then connecting that to either the plant or the human. So for example, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me, something in my throat. For example, thrips mm -hmm. transmit a particular viral pathogen mm -hmm. between tomato plants. And so mm -hmm. with those three species brings about the disease triangle. And so once I kind of stumbled into the world of insects, that kind of led me to viruses. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, viruses are hella cool. Yeah. What are these <laughs> yeah, tiny yeah, ass yeah. beings that are completely you know, pathogenic? Yeah. They rely on their host for survival. And some of them are just you know, so insidious, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but after that, I decided, well, I want to study viruses. So mm. from my very much degree in life sciences entomology, I applied to a molecular biology PhD program wow. at USC. Ooh, that's when I said Trojan. I'm a Trojan right here. Absolutely. Myself, so. Trojans in the house. <laughs> we'll have to pick on Guy a little bit later. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm the odd one out. Yeah. But hold on a second here. Sure. Actually, because my, my question, I was kind of referring, I want to go even more backwards in your life. Like, mm. tell me a time, like, I love what you just told me, the UC Davis story and everything, but I do want to go back to your childhood. Mm, I want to okay. understand, like, we have a scientist right here. I'm looking at one with an amazing experience. Walk me through what a like your childhood, did you think about science then? Like how was it with your family, any role models, more back, like I wanna see more mm -hmm. of the origin. Yeah, so let me let me try and I guess walk you through yeah. it. As, as I mentioned, I was super into science as a child. Again, mm. I had all those fascinations with reptiles. Yeah. 
I didn't have any scientists in my life. Actually, I come from a from a world of teachers. There's about five or six different teachers um, that mm. are my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my mom. Yeah. Um, and my dad is actually an entrepreneur, so he owns his own business, actually designing oh. women's shoe wear, funnily wow. enough. Oh, yeah. wow. That's, that's such a drastic that's change. So, yeah, so, that's so very, very interesting. So very yeah. drastic, exactly. And so actually he owns the business with his um, brothers. There's about yeah. five or six of them who are running that business yeah. um, out of, of course, Los Angeles. I don't know where science really struck up. It was just always something that mm. I loved. And it really came back to the natural world yeah. for me in the beginning. You know, when I was a kid, I wasn't like, viruses, molecular biology. No, no, no. I was like, whoa, this plant is really cool. You know, things yeah. that you can see and interact yeah. with. And I would always try and bring science, for example, in my middle school years, I remember yeah. we had this English teacher. She was fantastic. And she said, basically, write me a report on anything that you want. And I was like, whoa, mm. freedom, let's yeah. do this. <laughs> so I decided to create my own show about the Mythbusters scientific mm. edition. Yeah. So one thing that I did was I tested the five second rule. I like purchased these like agar plates from Amazon shipped yeah. to my house. And then I would drop different foods, mm -hmm. <clears throat> swab them, put them on the agar plate and see what grew. Yeah. So I don't even know, but that's kind of, I would, Science has always been imbued in my interests yeah. ever since I was a kid. Do you have any role models you could like remember, like uh, mm -hmm. somebody you look up to that maybe that kind of triggered you towards science and becoming who you are today? Yeah, maybe. What was the, um, like, what what's the first scientist you actually maybe looked up to and you were like, wow, mm -hmm. that they, they kind of, they were inspirational. Yeah, that probably wasn't until college, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was no scientists yeah. in my life. Yeah. Maybe some science teachers early on, mm -hmm. but nothing really comes to mind. But the real scientist that first caught my yeah. attention was in undergrad, mm -hmm. where I started my you know job as a research associate in the laboratory. Actually, his name was Steven Seibold. Mm -hmm. He was part of the USDA Forest Service. Part of his lab, I studied these beetles called the walnut twig beetles. It's funny yeah. when you study something, you never forget it. Scientific yeah. name, Pityotherus juglandus. I was about to ask. <laughs> I was like, what's the, what's, the, what's the Latin name? Yeah, so those insects, they infected these oak trees with this mm. fungal pathogen. Again, the disease yeah. triangle. Yeah. And so that was really the first instance where I had a mentor kind of give me freedom in the mm. scientific space. And yeah. really the first yeah. one I think that I realized Science is research in particular mm. is fascinating and definitely the, yeah. the world that I'm going to walk yeah. into. Who would you say is the most influential person in your childhood? Then doesn't have to be related to science. Just yeah. That's like who influenced you? Probably the most influential people. I mean, they're my parents. They're the mm -hmm. ones that were supporting me. Answer, exactly. Would, Buying those yeah. agar plates oh, that yeah. I wanted. <laughs> they had no yeah. idea why, but they were the ones really supporting me. And that not just beyond, you know, beyond yeah. science, like. I, I was super into sports as a kid. Mm. So all the, all that stuff that is was really expensive, driving, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you would so like, give me another passion actually as a child that you'd mm. like to do. So you'd say sports, can you like be more specific? What kind yeah. of sports? So probably the two passions that I had when I was a kid, even be, besides mm -hmm. science was sports. I loved being yeah. involved in sports. My, my sports were water polo. So I loved mm. water polo, MVP, all league water polo was definitely my jam, especially when oh. I was in high school. Yeah. I also did a ton of volleyball and softball. Mostly I played softball though to get out of the mm. swim season because I hated yeah. swim. Like yeah. what was the point of that? Just swimming back and forth in lanes? I <laughs> yeah. never understood it. <laughs> yeah. So that's the sports nice. aspect. Yeah. I was also very much involved with working with my hands actually mm. as a kid. Unfortunately, I've lost that a bit as I've grown up just because other things kind of started yeah. taking up the time. But the two things, the three things that I actually did a lot of was sketching and drawing. I would mm. sketch a lot of my favorite video game mm. characters yeah, on yeah, paper. Yeah. 
And then I did a ton of woodworking. So I grew up, my father's oh, also wow. a, a woodworker. Oh my so God. he would actually, you know, bring me into the garage and, yeah. you know, let me use like the table plane and, and the sanders and mm -hmm. the table saws. Yeah. And so I actually got to build a ton of my furniture that I eventually used when I went to grad mm -hmm. school. Um, that kind of got me yeah. to think of a question right now sure. on the spot. So yeah. based on what you just all told me, that collection of like passions in your childhood, do you think, what is one thing that you would think of that actually is helping you in your science field right now? Do you have any of those? Yeah, so it's building. If you mm. can take literally nothing and turn it into something, that is research. Mm. And so imagine wow. like the, if, for example, that. I'll draw, draw a parallel. <clears throat> when you're trying to build something with woodworking, your hypothesis yeah. is gonna be like your sketches that you're mm. drawing out, your plans. Yeah. When you actually get into the build, things kind of change you're, and you make miscuts mm -hmm. sometimes, especially when you're a kid. Yeah. And then tying that kind of to the research space, again, you're generating these ideas, these hypotheses that quite literally don't exist in the world. And then your you know, construction is actually yeah. the research and the experiments that you go and you do into mm -hmm. the laboratory. Mm -hmm. So 100%, like, my skills as a scientist yeah. have definitely been formed by the extracurriculars that my parents <laughs> forced me into. Well, they don't force me. I loved it, but that I participated in as a child. Yeah, beautiful. Do All right. So now that we've kind of brushed through your childhood, let's go back. Let's move on to the, the Trojan life. Okay, so awesome. Take us, take us, walk us through that. So mm -hmm. did you, so how was it like getting into that UC, USC path? Like, did mm -hmm. you think of it as a school first or was it related to just this? research field would love to know that um actually it had more to do with los angeles i wanted to come mm. home so oh. i only applied to two programs usc and ucla usc gave me a sign-on bonus basically so <clears throat> i decided yeah. that was the school yeah. for me yeah. <laughs> it's a great school so yeah, yeah. I am a Bruin currently, so... Ah, uh, <laughs> traitor! <laughs> Everybody says that. I know I'm an ex-Trojan and I'm a Bruin, but I like to believe I like, I'm like i the peacemaker. You're a double agent. <laughs> You're a double agent. Both my parents are Bruin, so I'm the traitor in my own household. Ooh, oh, wow. I mean, I did grad school there, so it's, I don't have that. Big, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I love to like joke about it. But anyway, so... Now, what do you think uh, you got, like, what do you think got you into this intensive program? Like, USC is a very competitive school. Like, for people listening, mm. like, what would you, because we can learn how to get into such programs. Like, out of your personality, your, like, your background, what got you into this program? With that bonus you even just mentioned. Yes, the bonus was offered to everybody. I was not special about that, but anybody who was accepted <laughs> but still, got like, that. Trust me, I'm sure there's multiple people that have applied for this program and you were chosen. So yes, that's what do you true. think gave you that like- The edge. Yeah. The edge, it had to do with my experience in undergrad. It was the research experience. And I'll reiterate here, my, my experience mm -hmm. in undergrad was not molecular biology at all. I was actually mm -hmm. running around you know, chasing insects, again, looking in, uh, at them <laughs> under the microscope. And I'm I had just made curious, this. Was there cockroaches? Any of those? Oh insects? God, no! Oh my Actually, God, thank I, God, because like I would, we did have cockroaches. Would... Not part of my research, though. <laughs> but in one of the classes that we took, it was a insect biology class. Oh. So we had to dissect a cockroach under, like one of those oh big cockroaches God. too, like I those big like... hissing ones. Oh my I God. hated one. Yes, That's, I hated gonna, that lesson. I'm, I it was, was terrible. so insecure to uh, to <laughs> declare this, but I was always I always had a phobia from cockroach. I cannot. If you tell me there's a cockroach right here, I'll have to leave. So yeah, <laughs> cockroaches <laughs> are gross. One my probably my hated insect is bed bugs, and oh, yeah, I had a time a where one. I was interning with this company that was basically making this detector that because <laughs> it's very difficult to diagnose a room with bed bugs, especially when you have very low amounts of them. So as an intern, I was actually tasked with 
crawling on my hands and knees on these mm -hmm. bed bug infested rooms under yeah. the beds to place oh these God. traps <laughs> and pull the traps. <laughs> yeah, when I got home after that work, my mom would always make me take off my clothes, put them in the dryer, jump Whoa. in the shower. Yeah, they yeah. better have paid you <laughs> enough for that. I was an intern, I got paid nothing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, we, we just realized we went off track, but that's good. Well, <laughs> the, I, one of the things I actually wanted to ask, I'm kind of going a little back and mm -hmm. maybe even on this topic, like, um, almost this misconception that science is so, so, so theoretical and hypothesis based, but in reality, like it can be so um, hands on, like mm -hmm. it is research is so hands on. And I think a lot of people maybe forget that to some extent. Yeah. And there's, of yeah. course, different avenues of research. Like I would say the the thought of being hands on is, you know, you ha literally have the experiment in your hands. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely the case when you're working with most life sciences, you know, with the insects, you're literally seeing your experiment under the yeah. microscope. Things change a little bit whenever you move into the molecular world because mm -hmm. you can't see what's really happening anymore. Yeah. And so you're relying on these basically tools to give you some peaks or spikes on a graph and after which you can infer what's happening in this mm -hmm. very small molecular space. So I think in that setting, it does feel a little bit less hands off. And I mm. think it also makes it a little bit more difficult to teach to young students because you can't, I mean, I had this idea like a few months ago, what if we can develop these virtual reality systems for kids? Imagine how cool it would be in front of your eyes, this giant CRISPR protein coming in, interacting with the DNA, cleaving it. And it's as if they are having a seat in the nucleus of the cells. Oh, wow. And so it's it's much more difficult to do with those molecular systems. You have to get more creative, I think, yeah. to be able to educate others and have it feel hands on. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think it's more, uh, I guess what I was kind of trying to maybe see is just how there's this really big dependence on empiricism, like even in molecular biology, whether or not you can see it or not, you're dependent on kind of your protocols or your methods or things like that. And you realize once you're in there that, you know, you can have all these theoretical frameworks for how to extract DNA or something. But at the end of the day, like then you see the protocol and you're like, there's like 200 steps here. And like, what is each step doing? Yeah. Uh, so actually, that's funny. That reminds me of when I was first getting into the molecular biology space, I remember you mentioned DNA purification. I was taking a class and the professor mm -hmm. was saying, we did DNA purification using these columns. And so my first thought was, you know, like these giant columns <laughs> yes, yes, that yes, hold yes. up buildings. And I was yeah. like, whoa, those must be like such interesting technologies, like these huge machines, these columns. And then I actually get into a lab space and it's like the size of an Eppendorf tube. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's a column. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So tell us more kind of, walking towards the PhD, I want to know what would you say, I'm doing it myself right now, the PhD program, so mm -hmm. I, I can relate to a lot of what you're telling me, and I want to know what would you think the hardest part for you was in that program? Ooh, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, the PhD program is hard, yeah. but I think that the one thing that kind of permeates everybody's experience is that no amount of education or training actually prepares you to do a PhD because mm. our education system in America is based off of memorization and regurgitation. Mm. And that is not what a PhD is. Actually, you know, know, even within the first two years of your PhD, you're still taking undergraduate style classes. At least yeah. I was at USC. Oh, yeah. You have the yeah. instructor, they tell you material, yeah. you memorize it, you regurgitate yeah. it, you yeah. put it back on a test. Yeah. And do you even remember a year or two years after? That's the question. I always tell myself that. <laughs> but that's that's controversial. I'm getting into a controversial topic but don't like don't get me started yeah but, the answer is no yeah. you definitely don't remember <laughs> yeah. it that way yeah but, <laughs> absolutely not well so it's then, 
So what would you say the hardest part then? Back to... Yeah, it's making that shift from, oh, there is a teacher there who has an answer to, oh, there is no teacher. And quite literally, there is no teacher in the world. You are the teacher. You are the pioneer, the discoverer of something Mm. new. Nature, with all of its hidden secrets, is actually you're trying to pry away those from her. And it's a complete different mindset. It's a completely different vulnerability that you open up. And it's not stupidity when you're wrong anymore. Because when you're wrong on a test, it's because you didn't study enough. When you're wrong in your PhD and actually in life, it just means take another stab at it. Maybe the protocol (laughs) that you use or the method that you did, it just wasn't right. The point being that there was no teacher anymore and you had to become your own teacher, Mm -hmm. the world's teacher. Wow. Yeah, it's almost like they're they don't really teach you to solve problems, like you said. I mean, it's it's regurgitation, and the only way to learn how to solve things is kind of by doing things. And yeah. it goes back to like this old um, Confucian saying, which is like, um, "I hear, I forget; I see, I remember; I do, I understand." Mm-hmm. Oh, so beautiful! It's yeah. like in doing, and even when you're learning science, right? Um, I mean, not until I actually started working in genomics did I see oh, like, why did I learn all this other stuff when I could mm-hmm. have been learning it in context and in application? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so then tell us what kept you going through this demanding, intense program. What would you say in your experience was that yeah. was like, I'm doing this. I'm not going to quit. I'm going. Huh. What was it? <laughs> yeah, not good emotions. Stubbornness, <laughs> anger, um, <laughs> frustration. Yeah. That's really what kept me going. And yeah. then... You know, you just don't quit at the end of the day. I, I mean, that. with a PhD, yeah. you're just thrown in the deep end. And, mm-hmm. you know, there actually nobody sinks because you learn something either way and you can graduate with a master's degree. So there's quite yeah. literally, I always hear people saying a PhD is sink or swim. No, a PhD program is about figuring out if research is for you. You are dropped into the yeah. deep end to figure that out. <laughs> um, but I was lucky yeah. enough to have research yeah. permeated throughout my life. So I was one of those that can find that island yeah. in the middle of the ocean and mm. build a project on it and eventually do yeah. some publications. Beautiful. So then to start to move, to get into the technicalities of your research, I want to start by define to me with my inexperienced like, background about CRISPR. We want to mm-hmm. hear into the listeners. Well, how would you explain CRISPR? Yeah, CRISPR is a tool, you know, just like how you use a wrench to fix a car and yeah. every tool in a in a mechanics workshop has a purpose. Mm-hmm. Just like in a scientist's laboratory, every tool, whether it be molecular or physical, has a purpose. Mm. So CRISPR is a tool. And the purpose of CRISPR's tool specifically is to cut DNA at specific locations in the genome. Interesting. Very simple. Wow. That's, that's and of course, this is revolutionary. It's simple but fascinating the way I see it. Wow. It is. It's simple but fascinating. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the beautiful elegance yeah. that is CRISPR. Because before CRISPR, it's not like we weren't doing gene editing. We had yeah, other tools yeah. to do it. We had yeah. meganucleases and endonucleases and zinc <laughs> finger nucleases and tailins. Yeah. But what CRISPR brought about was the ease of actually manipulating mm. genomes. And that's yeah. not just in humans, but in plants, in for applications of biofuels and diagnostics. And the list just yeah. goes on and on and on. And so what the revolution of CRISPR really was, was that ease of genetic engineering. Now, of course, yeah. it's not easy, but it is easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, excuse my ignorance sure. again, but 
Does it is it an abbreviation of something? CRISPR like, is. CRISPR okay. is an abbreviation. Actually, so is CAS. CRISPR mm -hmm. is an abbreviation of clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. I always <laughs> wow. say if there's a word in biology <laughs> that you don't understand, it's definitely an acronym for something else. <laughs> and so the CRISPR, yeah. those phrases, it actually comes from where CRISPR-Cas was first discovered, which was mm. part of the bacterial immune system, mm. where the scientists realized that they found these sequences that were clustered yeah. um, and they were obviously interspaced, short, palindromic, <laughs> meaning that they were kind of mirror, what's palindrome mean? Palindromic? Uh, anyway, I can't remember. <laughs> and they were repeated sequences. Yeah. So with that, they basically created the CRISPR acronym, the CRISPR yeah. name, and then CAS in itself, the CAS protein, is also an acronym for CRISPR-associated protein, CAS, CRISPR-associated, mm. C-A-S. Yeah, yeah, interesting. interesting. Nice. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think, um, what were you working on on your PhD that, I mean, obviously you would have been working on it for with CRISPR for six years, and that would have been probably at the advent of CRISPR yes. when, it, when yeah. it just would have been coming out. So that was pretty exciting. So I started mm. my PhD program in 2014. The seminal publication by uh, Jennifer Dowden and Emmanuel Charpentier came out in 2012. So I was yeah. pretty much right at the birth of that CRISPR explosion. But I did not start off using CRISPR. Actually, I was yeah. uh, put on this project where I was trying to genetically engineer these factors in cells called restriction factors to basically re-engage them in their protective abilities to block HIV infection, mm. again, using genetic engineering. Yeah. I was not using CRISPRs. I was using these other nucleases called zinc finger nucleases. And we had these um, collaborations with an entity that would actually create these. They are much harder to engineer than CRISPR is. Yeah. Um, so for... About the first two years or so, I was using the, that nuclease variety, and then CRISPR really started to get flowing. And obviously, we brought it into our genetic engineering laboratory. Realized, mm. you know, we made all the mistakes. You know, yeah. we expressed CRISPR in suboptimal ways through plasmids, but we were learning <laughs> along yeah. with the field. Um, and yeah. eventually, we became pretty good at it in the lab that I was in. Yeah. We were able to get quite high editing efficiencies in mm. these uh, particular cell type called the hematopoietic stem mm. cells. Uh, so that's kind of how the CRISPR was brought into our laboratory. It didn't start that way, but mm. we ended up that way. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I did a few CRISPR projects. I actually <laughs> think I have a, I'm in a paper that, oh, really? <laughs> that <laughs> used amazing. CRISPR also probably at the same time. But um, CRISPR was not what I was doing on the paper. I was, I think, this was a long time ago. So I think really? I was just validating the results in it. Mm. Um, I think one of the things I do know about it is I think one of the misconceptions with CRISPR is that, oh, it's so easy. We're just going to go in there and snip some stuff huh. and do it. Um, like, what is the tricky part of CRISPR? And, you know, how do you counteract it? Like, mm. I mean, you can kind of expand on that. <laughs> Yeah, so there can be many tricky parts. And of course, you know, the CRISPR gene editing in itself is just a means to an end. Mm. The therapeutic is not going to be the gene edit. It's going to be the product of the gene editing. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to pinpoint one particular problem that is kind of faced across many projects. But I'll just tell you about my problems that I faced. Mm -hmm. um, my project dealt with, as I mentioned, genetically modifying these restriction factors. And there's two, well, there's many, but there's two basic utilities of CRISPR when you're trying to either knock a gene out or break it. Very mm. useful if you're trying to, for example, knock out the entry receptor that HIV needs so it can no longer infect cells. Mm. There's also a different category of utility where you wanna make precise genetic modifications. Yeah. My project was under that second domain, mm -hmm. which tends to be much more difficult, particularly in primary cells, particularly yeah. in the stem cells that I was working with. 
at the time when I was just getting started, good editing efficiencies were maybe about 15, 20%, excellent about 30%. And of course, I'm a graduate student, so I'm dealing with 5% efficiencies <laughs> yep. at that point. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the bigger question then is what, what percentage of gene editing do you need to actually make something that will be resistant to HIV? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, that question is an unknown. So gene editors are just trying to hope for the best efficiencies that they can get trying yeah. to deeply, you know, trying to get these precise edits in the stem cells. So like mm. it's layers of difficulties mm -hmm. stacked atop yeah. one another. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to help, I think, solve one of those problems. So I, I dealt with so many frustrations, honestly, for years. And I thought, well, what if we could just predict gene editing? Mm. I don't have to deal with, you know, screening all of these different tools, yeah. testing them out. And so my graduating publication was actually in that domain of being able to predict precise designer gene editing. Mm. And so gene editing, understanding it deeply is definitely understanding about CRISPR, but it's equally important to understand how our cells repair DNA. CRISPR mm -hmm. is the thing we started off saying, CRISPR is the thing that makes the cut in the genome. Mm. The thing that actually gets the gene editing done is your own DNA repair proteins mm. in your cells. So by deeply understanding those mechanisms, yeah. You can do two very important things. You can predict gene editing and you can mm -hmm. control gene editing. And mm -hmm. right now, nobody's mastered both of those things. <laughs> yeah. Can you give me like one, like if somebody's listening to this and has no clue what CRISPR is and it's the first time he hears it, give me like a kind of a hands-on like example of what it could amazingly do to a human being. Oh yeah, sure, I'll give you an example. Yeah. So probably the, one of the most prevalent examples right now is dealing with uh, sickle cell disease. Mm -hmm. So sickle cell disease is caused by a single base pair mutation in the beta globin gene that leads to the truncation or the, uh, 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 it leads to basically polymerization of your hemoglobin proteins, okay. ultimately leading red blood cells to not function properly. They don't carry oxygen mm -hmm. well, you get these vaso-occlusive events yeah. and you don't be, live a good who life. Who have such a thing? Like just for them to, you see, you still mm. gave me a lot of biological terms. So yeah. who would have that? Somebody with what kind of disease would have that? Sickle cell disease. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. sickle cell disease, th that's, the, that's the disease that people would have who have mm. a mutation in mm -hmm. this beta globin gene. I see. I now, see. of course, CRISPR is a way to correct mutations in DNA. Mm. So there's about half a dozen companies plus academic institutions yeah. all developing different strategies to try and cure sickle cell disease using yeah. CRISPR. I see. I see. And that's just one application. We talked a little bit earlier about HIV yeah. applications yeah. Yeah. and yeah. then briefly what earlier. About cancer? Immediately I was cancer. thinking cancer. Yeah, yeah, cancer's exactly. a good one too. Cancer is a huge field with CRISPR, particularly with the CAR T cell technology. Mm. So CAR T cells are chimeric antigen receptors, yeah. engineered cells that can be built to um, target uh, specific mm. forms of cancer and basically kill them in the body and make uh, individuals cancer free. Yeah, there has been yeah. clinical trials with this type of technology. And to my knowledge, to date, some of those individuals continue to be completely cancer free. I so see. that's cancer, uh, CRISPR's application in that's cancer. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, got it, got it. I would like to know, you know, what are these really big, um, Getting really granular because I'm just like such an empiricist, um, you know, what are these like really major conceptual or experimental problems in CRISPR? You know, I know that CRISPR uses guide RNAs. There's a ton of there's a ton of predictive modeling, like, you know, knowing where to make those cuts, what to do, like what are like um, how do you override a lot of those experimental things like just technically? 
I don't think I understand. I mean, for example, like, um, what is the difficulty in like synthesizing guide RNA? What is its purpose? Like, why would we use that in CRISPR? Mm, yeah, in synthesis, well, synthesis and guide RNA in particular, I have no idea. The way that mm -hmm. I use guide RNA is I just buy it from a company <laughs> and then I open up the tube and then I use it. So yeah. synthesizing the guide RNAs were never my problems in particular. Um, I guess the, the, one of the other things is with CRISPR, they, um, as far as I know, they have these, now they're actually discovering different kinds of the CRISPR enzyme, so mm -hmm. like from different bacteria. Yeah. What implications do they have? Like, do you know if they have any unique features or? Well, they if, do. Yeah, that's what I'm. I'm curious about all the. What are all the Pokemon? So oh, to speak? I, I love. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> calling them Pokemon is actually perfect. So there are tons of Cas9 enzymes, other than mm -hmm. the most popular one that was originally patented by Doudna mm -hmm. and Charpentier, and then also with the MIT Feng Zhang, uh, with yeah. F. Feng Zhang and the MIT Institute. Um, but since then, it's just been a huge burgeoning field, partly propelled by the fact that most industry uh, can't actually use the Cas9 protein, so they're forced to find their own versions. Mm. And so actually what's happening right now is just an explosion of different companies. You have Metagenome, you have Arbor, you have Amendo, you have Inscripta, and all of these individuals have their own respective Cas proteins. You have Cas proteins that can target DNA, which we've been talking about this mm -hmm. whole time, you also have different Cas proteins that can actually target RNA. Mm -hmm. And this is the basis of the technology of Sherlock Biosciences and perhaps Mammoth, I'm not too sure, but definitely Sherlock Biosciences uses the Cas13 enzyme. Who are these people? Are they like a, I like companies? The They're companies. They're companies, yeah. I'm talking about an engineer here, so I have like, this is totally new to me. I'm like fascinated to listen to this, but yeah, sorry, keep going. No, no yeah. worries, yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, they're, I think they're using the Cas13 protein mm -hmm. and they're using it uh, specifically for diagnostic applications. Yeah, so because the guide RNA can basically target sequences, one thing that it can also do is, uh, well, detect sequences. Mm -hmm. And so buried in their Sherlock technology is the ability, and they're applying it right now, of course, to COVID testing, to actually mm -hmm. use CRISPR for diagnostics. And yeah. so that's where the RNA targeting Cas proteins are currently being used. And then those are just the enzymes that nature made for us. Scientists mm -hmm. are engineers. They take something and they develop something new. And so you have this whole class of these proteins called Cas9 fusions. So this is where base editors come in, prime editors come in, oh ways God, to visualize yeah. DNA. I'll give you an example. So in the last category, scientists have taken the Cas9 protein and basically broken its DNA cutting mm. ability. So it can't cut DNA, it's defective. But what they did was they fused it to a fluorescent protein like GFP or RFP or something. Mm -hmm. They put it into cells and let's say they'd make guide RNAs that can target telomeres. So what they can do then is visualize in the cell where the telomeres are, or they yeah. can paint entire chromosomes and <laughs> watch where those chromosomes move. I don't know if it's in real time, but at the very least they can watch them yeah. through the fluorescence. Oh, wow, that's mm. cool. Exactly. I did not know that. that but I, yeah. I, I did know that there's, you know, there's all these things coming out and I'm like, you know, that's why I said, you know, what are all these Pokemon? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe they should like start. That. Maybe, maybe that would be a great, uh, comp like a great company. You know, branding all these. Uh, yeah. Who's that? Who's that? Who's that? Who's that CRISPR? CRISPR? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that. You know that Pokemon. It's a good trivia image? game, at yeah. least. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean those poor undergrads who are going to have to learn all this now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's actually another problem. So <laughs> part of the things that I was dealing with, like when I was kind of trying to form CRISPR classroom a little bit, mm. was, um, you know, the I'm trying to help students better understand this CRISPR technology. So then how do you compete against 
the field that's just exploding. Every six months, there is an entire level of new knowledge that can be taught to these students, let alone new graduate students trying to enter the field. How do they keep up? How do they learn yeah. about all this? It yeah. just gets exponentially more difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and maybe that goes back to the original education model where like, you know, we're relying on these, um, I guess, like old school systems of knowledge propagation mm -hmm. by institutionalizing it um, when, you know, like if you look at the tech world, like tech moves very fast because they're kind of autodidactic in the way that they learn stuff. Um, and so, you know, there's there's some validity to that in the scientific space. Bi Absolutely. Biology is yeah. moving faster yeah. and faster and faster to the point where like they can't write textbooks fast enough yeah. to keep up Absolutely. With it. I was actually just talking to a high school teacher last week and she was telling me that their high school textbook is from 2012. Wow. For science. Yeah. And I and obviously that's not going to include CRISPR, yeah. but I just feel that many high schools in particular across the nation mm. don't really have up to date science education. Mm -hmm. And moreover, even if that's they cool. do, it's still not, um, you know, training in critical thought most yeah. of the time, in my opinion. Again, it's much more about that regurgitation, memoriza memorization, regurgitation. And so that's actually kind of the mm -hmm. part of the purpose of why I built this CRISPR classroom. Some of our programs that we're currently developing are actually directed towards high school students, mm. uh, either in-class activities, after-school activities, yeah. um, to actually get them learning a little bit away from that those normal practices, but about generating real hypotheses in which there are no answers. And yeah. they are able to actually do some hands-on CRISPR experiments, which yeah. can be adapted to high school students mm -hmm. actually very easily. Yeah. One of my favorite things that I did during my PhD was actually train high school students. I had mm -hmm. about a dozen or so, oh, and wow. they were my absolute favorite age range to work oh, with. They understood really? the material. They had fun wow. doing it, and it was fantastic. And I loved so much mm -hmm. working with my students and just seeing how much that they excelled and were able to just yeah. do the work. Mm. I mean, yeah, you really want to galvanize that, like, that passion that, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes... I mean, we become jaded with time. Oh, or we absolutely. can be. <laughs> can anyone join that CRISPR classroom? Is right now, anybody can join. Currently, we are not, we don't have. Specific, uh, yeah, I feel like as long as you know what DNA is, <laughs> you'll be able to join CRISPR classroom. Currently, I there's see. no hands-on activities. Yeah. We're still building out those programs a bit. But we do have the our online platforms at this point. And what yeah. we actually are just launching tomorrow, funnily enough, is a learning series called The Lab Mates, mm. which takes students anywhere between the ages of 16 to honestly upwards. Yeah, yeah. And um, introducing them to the cutting edge of CRISPR technology uh, organized in such a way that it feels like a scientific conference. So it's mm -hmm. about one one to one and a half hour session yeah. monthly with a moderator and chat functions and question functions, somebody introducing yeah. the speaker. But it is a lesson in and of cool. itself yeah. structured in the way of a scientific conference. And so we're actually mm -hmm. launching that tomorrow. There is quite a so few people exciting. on that registered list. And nice. I have to be honest, I'm a little bit nervous. I've never spoken to so many people in mm -hmm. my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, sign up. Oh, actually, we're going to be airing this later. So yeah. I guess it's going to be <laughs> passing. But yeah, um, <laughs> scratch that, whoever's I listening. I think one of the cool things, uh, or what I, one of the questions I want to ask is really like, what's something that I guess you're kind of tired of answering or maybe like what's the one thing that people misinterpret a lot about CRISPR when you're trying to talk about it, either from a layman or from other scientists? Yes. So that's a very, very good question. And uh, there are different answers depending on if it's a layman <laughs> yeah. and mm -hmm. versus if it's a scientist. I'll start with the scientist one first. 
Um, one thing that I've been trying to fight completely against in this field, and this has to do with some of my discoveries in my PhD, mm -hmm. which is that when you're trying to, well, backing up a second, when you're gene editing with CRISPR, some of the outcomes that occur in the DNA are called these indels, these insertions and mm -hmm. deletions, which are resultant of error-prone DNA repair, basically. And so the way that a scientist is going to be making a gene editing strategy is by screening a number of these target sites and ultimately selecting the one that is giving you the highest total indel efficiencies. Mm. A part of the work that I did in my PhD, the answer to that was that's a terrible way to do it, especially when definitely whenever you're trying to do a precise designer editing strategy, because the DNA repair pathways that give you those indels are more often than not uh, going to block your eventual goal, which is that precise editing. Now, very technical, because that's the problem that I see scientists making all the time. And it just, uh, I don't know, frustration is not the word, but I just know a better way to do it. And of course, scientists have a little bit of ego sometimes, so it's hard to really, you know, speak yeah. like that. Now, the layman, it's a completely different side of things. Funnily enough, the one question that I get asked most by students, and my students are global student based. So this has been asked to me from students from Brazil, Russia, India, the same question. Can I use CRISPR to make me immortal? That's the question that I constantly receive. It's funny because, you know, I mean, I don't know if I would actually want that, but my response to those types of questions is always, you know, will you settle for anti-aging? CRISPR <laughs> is being used for anti-aging mm. studies currently. So that's probably one of the misconceptions is that CRISPR yeah. will make you immortal. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, if you edited all your genes to become, a, you know, one of those jellyfish that just like <laughs> reproduces, then because they have like that immortal Wait, tell life. tell us more cycle. about the jellyfish. There's I this, know, I, I mean, know. I don't think it's all jellyfish, but there's specific ones that like, they have these um, kind of like a phoenix life mm. cycle where they, it's like a polyp, they grow, they're jellyfish, they go back to polyp, go back. And so this jellyfish can live in this own life cycle Ooh, infinitely. And never or, die. Yeah, it never wow. dies. I never heard of that. So you can do that. You can just become a jellyfish. And yeah, then I think we move into the space of ethics. <laughs> you know? Even if we Please. could do that, should we? I don't know. I, I want to be a jellyfish. <laughs> that's, a, that's another episode yeah. by itself. But. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's. I, I feel like people overestimate. I mean, there's huge ethical problems like we saw in China. I mean, that was its own. Yeah. Uh, they had created like a a baby, right? A twins, a twins. Lulu oh. and Nana. Um, so without any sort of regulatory, like, you know, no one said it. To be fair, didn't. that scientist was jailed for multiple I mean, years yeah, and he China, might yeah. still be in jail at this point, mm. but. Uh, yeah. Not, yeah. Well, yeah. not good. I, I remember that. when that news broke out, I was in my PhD, yeah. my lab was like, you know, we're a gene editing laboratory mm -hmm. and it was like the big, I mean, the big drama of the year, if not yeah. the decade. A scientist in China creates gene-edited babies with CCR5 knockout because I believe their mother had HIV. So his um, rationale was that we need to gene-edit these babies so that they also don't get HIV. Um, mm. I'll leave, you know, those kinds of discussions to people who are way more qualified yeah. to speak about them, but yeah. just saying that it was a big news yeah. during my time. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that goes to ask, like, what do you think is a really a characteristic that makes you a great researcher and sets you apart? And what would what would make a bad researcher? Oh, OK. So the first part is maybe not the answer that most people would give. I would say to stop when you know something's good enough. 
Oh, 80-20. Exactly. <laughs> Once you hit the good enough in an experiment, yeah. in a data, you don't need perfection. You just need to know, is this good enough? Did I get what I need? Uh, okay, now let's move on. That's something I struggle with. Yeah, it's, like it's a I'm really like, hard thing to do. I want to make it perfect. And with research, you rarely get that. Yeah. Well, I, f- yeah. I, I feel yeah. like you never, probably never get that. You never. I, yeah. I feel <laughs> like as an engineer, it could be like, you know, let's say you're building a building. Well, you don't yeah. want to be two inches off. You know what I mean? But with, with biology, it's almost like it's inherently multivariable and it's yeah like, and engineering it's more yeah it's more towards <laughs> like perfection i'll say and it's very stressful it's like oh yeah. we can 80 20 for the building you know you guys you like, it'll, it'll be fine it'll be fine um and what makes a bad researcher yeah that was an easy question ego, yeah. ego? as soon as you think you know Ooh, yes. too much you yes, will never ever those. make a discovery again oh my god i love that yeah beautiful answer yep yeah, I mean, I've seen those and I see how they actually end up failing. Yeah, you can absolutely. See that, yeah. And they're just a bad personality. Yeah. And the thing yeah. with scientists that I think is beautiful is just their collaborative ability mm-hmm. that yeah. they work together. And, you know, that's also the ideal. There's there's bad apples in the mix yeah, and they, they don't collaborate very well, just like, you know, in, in, in the world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, an ego is going to kill your scientific discovery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, pride comes before the fall. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think that kind of leads into another question. Um, how has your experience with collaborations been? Like, do you like them or not? Why or why not? You know, is, would you say like in, it, related to CRISPR things, is it very multidisciplinary or not? What's your kind of, what's your take on the collaborative nature of your space? Um, my experience has been great, um, in part because I've always gotten to choose my own collaborators. Mm-hmm. So if there wasn't a good one, I don't have to work with them. <laughs> yeah. um, that's been, been most of the, of the cases. Um, an example, during my PhD, I started developing the software and these bioinformatic tools to be able to predict precise gene editing. Now, of course, mm. I'm a scientist. Yeah. So actually, I took six months and I taught myself how to code simply to Damn, be able wow. to analyze my own data sets. I had all this data and no idea how to actually. What software are you using? I oh. was using R. So that was the language Ooh, that I, I used for a while. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was great. I actually went to like a two week uh, course at UC Davis. So I got to revisit Ooh. my my uh, undergrad institution. Mm. I learned how to script in R. I came back and I <laughs> analyzed my own data. But there was a bunch of stuff that I still couldn't do. Like, for example, I had to do these jackhard similarity coefficients and make all these crazy plots. So where I started collaborating was with the Bioinformatics Institute at USC. And they're fantastic. Just walked in. They helped. Well, they deeply helped me first understand what I was trying to (laughs) barely explain it myself, walking me through exactly how to do that. So that's one of the main collaborations that I look upon favorably now. I also in the past collaborated with um, uh, not uh, industries. Um, yeah. So during my PhD, my project had me collaborating with the one and only premier gene editors uh, that using finger nucleases, Sangamo. And so I got to work with a ton of their scientists and share data and work with them. And that was also fantastic. And then currently I'm collaborating with, wow, with CRISPR Classroom, just mm. tons of instructors and professors content writers throughout the globe and it's just been a pleasure and it's always the best when you can choose your own collaborators who you want to work with oh yeah i mean i think i think the position that you're in by having this kind of educational platform is super great i mean i think what a lot of researchers um, especially up and coming emerging ones might feel is can be like a sense of isolation or things like that so fine definitely being a, a vanguard in terms of like being able to bring people um together like that is is pretty beautiful yeah 
Um, how do you, I guess going back to that, because you have created this digital platform, like how do you think that digital mediums can hinder or enhance those scientific collaborations? Uh, very interesting. So, you know, we all just came out of the life of COVID. I guess some mm -hmm. of us are still in it. Mm. I think that that in particular was one thing that opened my eyes that, hey, education is taking place online. Maybe this is something that we can do and not just, you know, teach standard uh, skills, but at the cutting edge of resource mm -hmm. of research. And so that was partly the impetus that led me to actually develop these um, online learning platforms to be able to learn deeply these advanced biotechnologies like CRISPR uh, gene editing. And so I think a lot of training can be done online. Now, what the online piece um, lacks is the interactivity. Mm -hmm. Now, you can make up with that in a number of ways. And so I did a, actually a ton of research recently. Online interactivity can be uh, promoted through, I think, two mechanisms. One is live online sessions. You are physically interacting with the person that is speaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, have, you have them there to ask questions, et cetera, which is part of the reason why this uh, uh, learning series that I'm doing, this conference series, which is called The Lab Mates, mm -hmm. um, is a live session. So they have live abilities to interact with myself in the audience. The second is actually interactive PowerPoints. There are some new programs out there that actually allow the user to click and drag things and watch videos on their screen. So it's as if a narrator is there walking mm -hmm. them through the movements of things on the screen. And so mm -hmm. those are two of the platforms that I kind of use on my mm -hmm. online programs to try yeah. to enhance that interactivity feature, live sessions and interactive PowerPoint instruction. Yeah, I mean, that's super cool. And then in, I guess I guess you kind of answered both questions in terms of like how that. it can enhance, how it can hinder. Um, do you think that our current like um, maybe the institutional models that we have in place, do you think they actually are good at promoting collaboration or um, community based science? Like, do you think that the structures that are in place in our current like frameworks are actually good at it, like in labs, in you know, people. Yeah. That's difficult because structures are made up of people. So do the people do those things? Well, it depends. I guess it's more like, do you think that a lot of the, um, let me think how to explain that. Um, it's almost that because it's prescribed, like there's a bureaucratic element to it. Like, yes, people do decide that. But I think, for example, like when you're looking at uh, publications, right, there's this really heavy focus on like, style over or form over function when you know you might submit a manuscript and then you have these editors being like oh well i don't like this adjective and six months later you're still not published because you didn't use the right word that they wanted and so there's almost this kind of paradox because you think of scientists as being you know they would always call themselves pragmatists yet when you know when faced with the music it's kind of like well the structure says it's this way and so they opt into these kind of hierarchies yeah that's never been <clears throat> my experience um i mean i've definitely you know submitted manuscripts and there are <laughs> comments that come back where i'm like well they just didn't understand it yeah. um yeah but you just suggest <laughs> i don't know it's difficult to speak about those structures and especially about collaboration like I'm a collaborative person. So mm -hmm. if I want to work with something, somebody yeah. and you have the tools that I need, I will just drop my name into your inbox and I will mm -hmm. talk to you. I will form a relationship regardless of what structures yeah. may or may not impede mm -hmm. us. And if you're that type of person, you will collaborate with the people you want to collaborate with. I see. I'll give you an example. 
one of my favorite scientists, young scientists out of, or she out of now, Princeton. Um, her name is Britt Adamson. I've always wanted to collaborate with her. Um, <laughs> and I have not gotten to do so to this just yet, but I have formed a relationship with her uh, to be able to talk about CRISPR and science. Mm. We haven't talked in a while, but she is one of my favorite young scientists out there. That's and so I reached out to her cold and I said, yeah. you're, you're, you're uh, speaking at conferences. It's amazing. Your work is awesome. Let's <laughs> chat. I mean, that's what I mean. I love that. And like, I, I feel like that's how I believe it is. And that's how I want it to be. And that's how I behave in, in, yeah. in science I feel like as guy, well. What Guy's trying to say is like, would you, in a way, if you, if you think like, do you see any obstacles that these institutes are have like creating for us in this field? If you would kind of pinpoint something for us yeah. to think about, or maybe people hearing it might kind of say, hey, you know what, we can improve that aspect mm -hmm. based on your experience. Yeah, so in the academic setting, I would say collaboration is really easy to do. If you want to collaborate with somebody who's in another academic institution, mm -hmm. you can just reach out to them, drop mm -hmm. some work together, yeah. submit a grant. Where things get complicated is when you're trying to collaborate either with companies or private institutions mm -hmm. or collaborations between two private institutions. Like if I saw company doing something cool during my employment at another research company, I could not just reach out to them. It would have to go through the proper channels, et cetera. Yeah. So there's more hindrances when you're in a private entity, um, mm. but rightfully so. You're trying to protect your developments. You want yeah. everything to be strategically optimized because you are working now as mm -hmm. a unit within yeah. that company. Nothing you do in a company is yours anymore. Mm -hmm. It's for the purpose and the betterment of the company and the company's missions. Um, or to you know serve humanity, mm -hmm. make yeah. these therapies. So I'm, it's I'm curious more in difficult. your eyes. Speaking of this, it's just like a, a question that just popped up. What would you say the best company when it comes to research? Oh, that's like, a really really <laughs> tough question. There yeah, is like our top tons two, let's of see. great companies um, that are giving that collaboration atmosphere that promotes like research and like all of what we just talked about. Yeah, right? so it's hard for me to say because I've only been employed at one of these companies, mm. so uh, I'm sure I'll leave tons of names off of the list. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a tough question. I it's, don't it's a, put you the, I know, yeah, it's, it's yeah, a tough. It's a tough question. Now. I have a few. I have a few <laughs> companies that are my personal favorites. Yeah. I'll just give you yeah. an example. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite companies out there. Their name is Metagenomi. Um, I mm. had the opportunity to interview with them uh, at one Where point. Where are they located? I don't know. If, I don't. They're sorry, located don't in it's the Bay Area. Um, uh, it's see. not SF proper, but it's slightly South, outside South of that. San Francisco. Probably. I know. I don't exactly remember where, but it's in the Bay Area. Mm. Um, they're they're a new company. Um, I'm yeah. not sure what series funding that they are just yet, but part of what they do is actually do these uh, metagenomic analysis, <clears throat> where metagenomics is the uh, study of basically environmental sequencing samples and they do so to discover new cast proteins yeah. so they have they uh, recently um, spoke at a conference a world-renowned conference asgct for genetic engineering and in that conference they spoke of these many many different new cast enzymes that they're mm. able to discover and now are trying to make therapeutic use of. So they're one of my favorite companies out there. I have <laughs> yeah. a few, but I'll, I'll list them right now. I hope they, okay. I hope they hear. <laughs> Alan, if you're listening to this. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's super. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. there's a ton of great work being done now. Like, I mean, it's it's really exploding. I mean, it's nice to see biology going the way of tech with its kind of like, it's just putting its fingers in a lot of pots, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, I think that goes to, um, I'm always a very curious person about like, you know, uh, kind of publications, the publication system, and the way that, I mean, in academia, like a lot of scientists are judged very heavily on like 
how much they publish um, and mm-hmm. things like that. What do you think of, do you think that this current, what people call publish or perish model, do you think that it actually uh, enhances the work? Do you think it hinders the work? Um, you know, what's your, what's your kind of take on it? I think it's essential. You, it should quite literally be publish or perish because Whoa. if scientists mm, wow. are That's not publishing, it means that they're not doing research. They're not making discoveries. Mm. Now, that's for academic science where mm-hmm. the purpose of your literal job is to make discoveries. Discoveries are shared through publications. If you're mm. not publishing, it means you're not discovering. Yeah. It means mm-hmm. you won't get grants. It means your position in the university is likely unsecure. So I think publisher Paris mm-hmm. is the way to go. And but if you're a good scientist, you I'm, won't perish. I love that you answered it this way because in my humble opinion, I would, I have my own thoughts on this. And me and Guy talk about this all <laughs> the time. I can see Guy smiling. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I mean, I think, I think the interesting thing is, um, I, I actually kind of agree with you in the sense That's, that, yeah, yes, you should be publishing. What, however, one of the things is that. Um, almost by the fact that it is this quantitative approach versus a qualitative one, you start to get what we see now are these insanely high levels of false positivity in people's work because they feel like they're catching up to the the funding of what they have to do and as a consequence puts them in a position where maybe it takes a few more years to get the good paper out, but the funding is only... It's, it's all around allocated around short-term goals, whereas mm-hmm. science can have longer time cycles. And, and to add on what Guy is saying, and sorry for tackling you, <laughs> because we're kind of playing the devil's advocate right now, yeah. is that research, not everybody can, like some experiments I can see in my current lab that take two years to three years to actually have a complete study and have enough data and say, this is novel, let's publish. So to put that publish or perish concept on people that are working for three years, on something as legit as people that publish 10 papers within those three years, is I think you're you're underestimating those people to an extent. You see my point? So what like- Yeah, usually when publishing is done, it's not one individual, it's a laboratory. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. those laboratories that are publishing 10 papers, I assure you, they have 20 graduate students. Laboratories yeah. that are publishing one paper a year, they probably have a smaller lab group. And it very much depends on the, you mentioned quality versus quantity. Mm. For example, whenever you're doing your PhD, yeah, I could publish four times in these lower impact journals or one time in nature and be able to graduate. Mm -hmm. So there is that balance between quantity and quality. And there's many other kind of tricky problems within this Mm -hmm. space uh, that I think we won't even have time to graze the surface on. I think one of the biggest ones that definitely affects graduate education is that your professor, the one that's in charge of your lab, I guarantee you they were not trained for that job. They were Mm. trained like you were trained on how to do research. And now Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're flung into this role of grant writing, conference, administrative tasks, Mm. training, none of which that they were trained for. And so it's actually quite difficult for professors to grow into Mm -hmm. that role to be able to actually no longer do science, but be a boss. Mm. Yeah, I think I think that actually leads really well, like when your institutions are only judging you on the amount of publications you have, it basically starts to completely forget about all the unseen work that people do that Im- that improves all the quality of your work. Mm-hmm. So I think my question is like, what is some of the unseen work that you think is pivotal to science, but goes undocumented? Like mm. we just focus on impact factor and it's yeah. like, but yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. During my PhD lab, I was working under the guidance of Dr. Paula Cannon. Mm-hmm. I had a fantastic experience. I mean, it was hard mm-hmm. as hell, but it was fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. And in that laboratory, the laboratory as a whole publishes maybe once a year, once every two mm-hmm. years, sometimes once every three years. There can be these long gaps in publications. Um, that's not because we're not working. We're working a lot. But yeah. I, what I see from her is actually she's her t- a lot of her time is taken up by many other duties, um, in many administrative tasks, many um, you know things to do for the surrounding community. And that was something that USC actually always uh, looked highly upon. So, and of course, she got tons of grants too. Yeah. So she was very much favored within the community. But you know, as a professor, it's it's and especially when you're not trained really to walk into that role. Paula, I think, was one of those professors that was able to handle it quite well, um, and just moving away from the science details a little bit mm-hmm. and being able to be. Mm-hmm you know, a thought leader, an administrator to be able to help the institution. So there's a lot professors can do um, to kind of secure themselves. What I I also was sensing from you is that you see it as a career, like you're looking at it as a laboratory versus a student or or a scientist. So that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it. To me, I just see as an individual, he published five papers and he's applying for that job versus the other individual that only has one. And I noticed when you were saying it, you're like, this is a laboratory that's collectively did 12. So you're yeah. looking at it as an institute versus personal, the way Absolutely. me and Guy looks at it. So that's yeah. also a different way, I would mm-hmm. say. And then we can even, you know, science is not done by one person. I mean, it's yeah. like yeah. a it's like a community of tiny little advances that collectively yeah. together yes. and we're all criticizing each other, but on purpose so that yeah. nothing wrong comes out and still many things wrong come <laughs> out. But the purpose of it is to actually grow together as a community. Yeah. So it's never one scientist, it's yeah. never even one lab. It's an yeah. entire sector of yeah. studies that are intermingled with other sectors that well, actually all progress yeah. together. The system is, I would say, that's again my humble opinion in this. The system does judge one person on its publication way more than how it should be. That's again my hum- it's an opinion here that I'm saying. It's yeah, that. I mean I have two publications, one of which is a review article. Only one of my publications is a true science article. Yeah. You know, I had a fantastic career uh, working in the in industry sector and now as an entrepreneur trying to start my own thing. Mm-hmm. My lack of publications actually never hindered me. Now, if I wanted wow. to become a I professor, that, <laughs> yes. it yes. definitely would yes. have hindered yes. me. Yes. I see your point. So yeah, that's actually a beautiful way to answer this than just giving us your your like mm-hmm. your experience in this. OK, I think I think that kind of also asks, you know, how um, what are the ways that you I mean, I guess in your case, what were the ways in which you were valued or recognized like beyond your papers? And like, even in an academic setting, like, do you think that if you are going for tenureship and things like that, should these students also be recognized or valued in ways like, like, let's say, you know, I had two publications, but I supported the growth of like every single undergraduate and graduate student that went through our lab, made sure like, you know what I mean? Like, those are the things that actually would indicate that you would be a good professor. You know, you know what I mean? The, yeah. That's kind of the irony of it. Yeah, it's hard for me to answer that. I don't have that experience <laughs> and I don't know, know exactly mm. what it's like. But off the top of my head, I would guess that great academic institutions will hire great people. Whether that person is made great by their thousand publications or an interwoven experience of publications, community support, admini- successful administrative tasks. I think it's up to the individual institutions to pick exactly who mm-hmm. they want. Now, the beautiful part is, is that there is thousands of institutions out there. So if some, you know, you get rejected by one, I would say don't quit. But again, these are not my my experiences exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, I think uh, one of the <laughs> going back like a little bit, uh, a little bit technical. Um, if you remember, you know, you go back to your PhD. How much time did you actually spend like reproducing people's experiments? Like, how do you? What What was your process? I guess in like, okay, you're running your experiment. How do you decide what you're gonna do from like a practical point of view? Like, mm -hmm. you read a bunch of papers. Like, okay, I need to extract DNA. Where do I get this information from? Like, yeah. So it all starts with a goal. So if I'll give you an example. In my time, I was trying to gene edit the hematopoietic stem cells and mm -hmm. get high gene editing efficiencies. Yeah. So that was mm -hmm. my goal. I see. And then to the first step to basically get to that goal is don't even read the scientific papers. Google, <laughs> Google, how do I gene yeah. edit? Watch some YouTube videos. <laughs> There's some Old stuff out there. there. Exactly. Yeah. That'll get you from basically yeah. starting to halfway to first base. We'll say yeah. that you got around a lot of bases, but just Google step one. Step Absolutely. two is reading scientific papers. And then, of yeah. course, if you're trying to reproduce protocols, focusing heavily on the methods section. I think that there is a little bit of lack of a scientific community that you can reach out to mm. um, for sharing protocols and things like this. So it is very much um, in the hands of the researcher yeah. to kind of figure it out a little bit. Um, and then you, you briefly mentioned, you know, how do you like reproduce their experiments? Most often when reproduction is being done, you're not reproducing the experiment. Yeah, exactly. yeah. it's like components. Or exactly. So like if some publication all. says, you know, adding this to your experiment will increase editing efficiencies and it works great in their hands. Yeah. Then you bring it in and it might work great. In my experience, most of the time that thing didn't work. It doesn't mean it, it doesn't work. It might just mean mm -hmm. that we don't understand enough about it to know mm -hmm. why did it work for them and not for us. Yeah. And I so think, one, yeah. one key phrase, I think, whenever you're describing data is in their hands, they saw this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, th I, th I think that's one thing that, you know, and Ali and I talk about this all the time. It's one thing in science where, like, there's this such a, such a heavy focus on, like, that writing the publication when sometimes, which is a high level of form, when sometimes it can literally just be, hey, by the way, like, um, yeah, if you increase the temperature to 42 degrees, like you can, you know, culture this bacteria or something. You know, yeah. it's a, it doesn't yeah. have to be this like whole fluffy ordeal <laughs> to just, you know, yeah. get to the point. <laughs> it's yeah. very empirical. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, I think one of the kind of interesting questions is, you know, how do you how do you actually envision a world in which science is like just paint a picture for me like what does a world look like where science is collaborative transparent you know people like share their know-how and like what does this kind of world look like where scientists are like connected in this way and are like yeah let's just let's go for it you know yeah i mean we're living yeah. in that world <laughs> that's truly what i believe yeah there's oh, the bad wow. apples in there but we're living yeah. in it that's what the conferences are for that's what the the, yeah. I mean, the purpose of most academic institutions is to foster that type of collaboration. Yeah. So I would say we're living in it. Do you think, but on that, do you feel like, I love that you're, you're, you're I can see your positivity in, in this. I love it. It's yeah, so, you're like, it's you're so powerful. One of the, yeah, you're very positive about your approach and how you see science and, uh, currently. But do you feel like there's any stinginess in what people are producing? Like, do you feel like I need to know more about this to actually be able to reproduce it? Have you faced that to an extent? Because these are some struggles that we hear in this field. So I kind of want to see your aspect of it. Um, 
I mean, maybe. Um, in my experience, but we bring the negatives every... one here, and you're the positive <laughs> one. So I don't want to be that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah yes. we just want to take that out of you. Let's totally. see. Totally. <laughs> in my experience, like when I'm having trouble with protocols, and I've reached yeah. out to the the authors on those papers, mm -hmm. I've actually almost always gotten a response. Mm. Um, and then when you know you bring up stinginess, you know there could be reasons for that stinginess. Mm -hmm. Like it could yeah. be you know not public yet what these discoveries are. Maybe mm. they just don't want to work on it a little bit. And but it's if it's not published already, don't you feel like in your paper list it in a more informative way so I can replicate it properly? Ah, uh, yeah. Or... I mean, I feel like that's a the whole other thing about making scientific papers more reproducible. Mm -hmm. But then again, it's like, should that reproducibility be put there? Scientific papers are already really, really hard to read, mm. let alone having a very extensive method yeah. section dedicated to having mm -hmm. any grad student for the first time re repeat this experiment. Yeah. So it's a bit of a balance. Yeah. I think that actually a third party to be able to solve that problem is better than mm. solving that problem through scientific publications in and of itself. Um, mm. Those are my thoughts there. Oof, yeah, I mean, that yeah. sounds pricey. An yeah. entire agency that only reproduces <laughs> experiments. Oh, no, no, no. They just like provide the protocols and yeah. things, not reproducing. Reproducing experiments will come when scientists try and use the tools of other scientists. Yeah, that's yeah. where reproducibility yeah. will come in. Yeah, that's kind of the part where, I mean, that's one of the, things I'm super excited about. It's almost like get having ways in which scientists can, if you do reproduce things, kind of like, you know, if, imagine like you're on Amazon and like you try to buy a blender or something. Is and your reviews you, there. Yeah, like it's, it's like, it's like, hey, doctor so-and-so, um, you know, I tried to reproduce this tiny part of your methods, but your methods are really opaque and it didn't work. So I'm not calling you out, but maybe I might be a little bit. <laughs> I feel like this is powerful for us to like kind of, and it kind of puts people under the pressure to, be, to produce better. That's how I see it, if yeah. that's available. But, it's like if you're releasing yeah. a paper that, you know, you have all this discussion, all this result, here's all my data, da-da-da. Well, what about your methods? Huh? Where's where's the, you know, how, how exactly am I going to do this now? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I'd say it's very, very difficult to be thorough in a publication. Because mm. in a publication, well, let's say you have yeah. 5,000, maybe 10,000 words to talk about six years of your life and work. So I know having experienced a scientific publication that there was a hell of a lot of work that is on my computer and is mm. not in that publication. But it would be very informative to have read. Now, yeah, part of yeah. my thesis, of course, yes. because yes. I was in the graduate yeah. program. But normally a lot yeah. of those details just get left off and it's just the nature kind of yeah. how it works. I don't yeah. have a solution. But you're the one with the experience here. I'm still working on my PhD and mm -hmm. uh, Guy's the youngest out of all of us here. So, <laughs> so she's the, I she's don't the have one a PhD. with the experience. I love your positivity <laughs> and I'm going to go with that. But yeah. So you do feel like you do feel like what's happening right now in our current world is good enough for us to collaborate and give us the, be the best potential for more like research huh. inside like, yeah what, so this goes back that, to the like, to the what's what's the something strong that the scientist has knowing yeah. it's good enough i'm not saying it's good enough i'm just saying that right now i don't have a way to make it better um mm. in my experiences mm -hmm. i've never had problems um i, I think that there are way things details that could be improved particularly to help graduate students who haven't quite figured out exactly how to apply methods of course method sections we've been dwelling on it now but Methods aren't even contained in one paper. One method section will reference their previous paper, and that paper mm. will reference their previous <laughs> paper. I so mean, now yeah. you're 10 papers deep trying to find how the hell did these people do this? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, those are tons of problems there. Um, I think mm. we're at the good, good in, we're, yeah. we're okay right I now. See, Things can get better. What's your favorite platform, do you think, right now, in terms of what's the, that gives you, like, 
that like is it google scholar for example or like something that mm. you see in front of you that you're like wow this is so powerful like um, this is helping me a lot yeah so in the crispr space specifically i'll talk about crispr medicine news so mm. this is being run um mm -hmm. Uh, as a, a, a news source for everything related to CRISPR. And so the, the team actually is branching out a little bit into yeah. uh, like a job hosting platform for CRISPR scientists. They're also doing educational activities, um, like seminars and things of that nature. Um, they have cataloged clinical trial results, uh, mm. all organized about what's happening in the CRISPR world. So I particularly love CRISPR Medicine News. Mm -hmm. I read them. I tell all my friends and colleagues to read them. So that's the one resource that I would recommend <laughs> to anybody interested in keeping up with the CRISPR space. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Interesting. That is super cool. I like this. Yeah. So... <laughs> Sorry, I got distracted. I was looking at <laughs> I was looking yeah. at the CRISPR news. Um, um, yeah, I mean, whew, that's a lot of a lot of a lot of information. Um, I don't even know. Um, yeah, I think one of the things maybe we can go back to the PhD. Um, what were your maybe really big? Um, I guess like failures. What were your failures in? I guess I don't even want to call them that. There's no such thing as a failure in science. That's really. what I was going to say. It's, it's, a, it's yeah. it doesn't even exist. It's more like um, you know obstacles or like you know you reach these kind of breaking points and you're like, ugh, everything's kind of falling apart. I don't know. If, I, I actually don't get the feeling like you got to that point. I feel like you're you're so headstrong. Um, you would just like. I am quite headstrong. <laughs> like, yeah. You're like, I would never do that. It's, it's true. But, you know, a PhD, I mean, honestly, if it doesn't put you in depression, you're a rare breed. Dude, a PhD <laughs> is really, really, really hard, partly because you're constantly failing. Um, and that doesn't mean, you know, your experiments just don't work. But it's also because, you know, you don't quite fit into that niche yet. You don't know how to be a good scientist. And coming up against that wall, again, because your entire education before that, always had an answer answers no longer exist in your phd mm -hmm. and that's the one thing that definitely makes it one of the most challenging experiences is yeah. to switch that mindset mm -hmm. and understand that there is no answer and that you quite literally have to find something new in order to graduate yeah. and it can feel like prison i mean not to put prison <laughs> on that kind of same pedestal it's nothing like that at all <laughs> but the yeah. point being that you can't get out unless your committee says you're ready so mm. that means four people there yeah. judging you saying are you one of us no keep working yes yeah. good job <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, how would you define failure like if, if um if it's so hard and people actually say that there's no such thing as failure in science so what I mean, failure to me would be making the same mistake over and over. That's yeah. failure. Not I just making that. it once. Or insanity. Like, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, or is that insanity? You're right. <laughs> what would be your biggest life takeaway from being a scientist? Ooh. Um, like my biggest life takeaway from being a scientist? Yeah. Like the, the, the thing that I learned the most mm -hmm. about being a yeah. scientist? Okay. Yeah. Uh, critical thinking. 
that that thing is like the one thing that being a scientist you're you very good at day -day exactly and that's oh. one thing that you quite literally apply give us an example everywhere Let's see. Huh, i'll give you an example <laughs> yes. okay so not to brag but i've become a social media guru <laughs> yeah. lately Ooh. instagram Whoa. okay instagram is, your instagram's popping it is popping you checked <laughs> it out didn't yeah. you please it's share popping. your instagram to the listeners absolutely like, please do my instagram at crispr classroom we share you know understandable digestible scientific information mm. mostly about crispr but also that platform, it's like my rebellion. Yeah, During my yeah. PhD, I remember my mentor, Paula would always say, you know, like my, my graphics were, they were mm -hmm. too fun. <laughs> yeah. You gotta, you gotta tone it down. It just has to be simple, clear, understandable. And I always thought, well, I want my graphics to be fun too. So then Instagram, of course, I have nobody telling me what to do. So <laughs> yeah. I've decided that this is my rebellion. I'm gonna use my neon colors, my yeah. blacks, my gold. I mean, you generate my... so much visual content. I'm like, oh my God, you're like a full-time graphic designer. <laughs> I basically am. Content creation is like, I don't know if you guys seen that Bo Burnham special recently. Oh yeah, I, I only I love know the it. Jeff Bezos song. Oh, yeah, because that one's also popular <laughs> on Instagram. It's too catchy. But there is this one song where he does, you know, I made you some content, daddy made you some content. <laughs> and I desperately want to sing it and post it on my Instagram, just oh. pointing to my content, not to give anything oh away God. to my followers. <laughs> but yeah, so critical thinking is mm. actually one thing that I'm deeply applying to social media and I Instagram. Yeah. Um, and, nice. you know, it comes in many aspects. One is the content creation. Content creation is something I've literally trained for for six years now. How do you turn a very detailed, dense scientific topic into one single digestible fact that has a good visual. Mm. It is a skill <laughs> that is very difficult to do that yeah. I am now applying to social media. And then of course, critical thinking comes into what types of you know posts am I gonna make? Moreover, who am I going to interact with on Instagram? Mm. And so yeah. you develop strategies you know, to yeah. gain more followers. Yeah. And um, I actually don't even like calling them followers. Like they're, friends. they're people, <laughs> thank you, they're friends. And I, and I, and, yeah. I make sure that every one of those people that follow that page know that yeah. they have a direct line to me. DM me and I respond. <laughs> you want to talk about that. career opportunities? I'll talk to you about it back. Yeah. You want to talk <laughs> about science or CRISPR or you know immortality? Immortality. <laughs> I will respond no matter what. I, I will so turn that's you my into line. a jellyfish. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> so let's go on to like what, how would you define greatness? Like what is greatness in Chris's eyes? As different, it's different. And that's how we work together. As, it's different in different people. Mm. So my greatness won't look the same as Guy's greatness Ooh, or your greatness. It's very, very different. And so yeah. greatness is using your specific strengths to the most strengths, the strongest yeah. that you can use yeah. them basically. That's greatness. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, what my skills are that I think that I'm very good at is um, speaking, scientific communication, I think is one of the things that I'm good mm -hmm. at. It's always a I challenge, you know? Yeah. I can I can hear myself talking about scientists sometimes and I'm like, oh, this is too complicated, like yeah. simple, simple, simple. And so it's a learning experience mm -hmm. always, but that's one thing that I'm trying mm -hmm. to focus on in my type of greatness, scientific yeah. communication. Um, and there's many other things, but I don't want to go on listing yeah, listing yeah. all the many of, of like my greatnesses. General, like it was more of a general thing. It's like be, be Darwin's Finch, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what scares you the most when you start a new project or a paper or let's say an experiment? Like what, what do you feel like what scares you? Mm, I think the difficulty is just don't be scared. If you're going to do something, <laughs> just jump in. Because yeah. if you're going to do it, what's the point of doing it and being scared? Like, mm. if you're going to do it, just do it. I like that. Don't even think twice about it. Starting's the fun part. Starting's the fun part. <laughs> I completely agree. Some people have that, like, it's, it's, it could be related to the, being a perfectionist. Like, I personally feel like what scares me the most is that 
I'm like starting something new I've never done before. I'm ah, gonna fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's advice. No, yeah. yeah, you're not good at something, just fake it. Yeah, fake. It. There's so yeah. many. There's so many people who are not good at what they're doing, yeah. and yet they have. They're very. They're they're perceived to be yeah. very mm-hmm. good. I think, and that comes with that. Actually, on this note, speaking of that, imposter you, syndrome. Yeah. Now, I know that that's something that. Um, you know, many people deal with, yeah. and you know, there's like blogs trying to help, you know, tons of students. I saw you raise your <laughs> hand here, so clearly there is some in this room. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that that just comes with that, that Because I feel like again. you don't have that. Somebody that just answered that question would just go with it. Literally gave me that energy that you don't have that. I love that. And I've never felt, powerful. yeah, I've never felt yeah. that, I think that in could the be things possibly, that I do. Would you say that could be the reason why you are successful and you are who you are today? Can I say that? Um, I think it's just who I am. <laughs> I don't know if that's also what leads me to my success. Because, no, because people, like, yeah, people with imposter syndrome will do great. You yeah, know, they'll just true, get over true. that over yeah, time. I love that too. So yeah, yeah it's sense. just it makes my journey maybe just a little bit easier yeah. than that not to. And it's not like you know I'm not afraid of failure. I'm not worrying. Yeah. You know, like this thing that I'm doing. Like, what if nobody likes it? Or what if people yeah. judge me? Like everyone has those thoughts, myself yeah. included. But it's just, I think it's a practice skill to just mm-hmm. push them away and be yeah. like, you know, without being so crass, just like, yeah. F you, I'm going to do it anyway, inner self. <laughs> yeah. One story related to that topic you want to share with the, the listeners, the, the young researchers that you'll never forget about that, like being entering a new project or like, let's say, in your case, you're not scared of it, but like something you were excited about. I want to hear like one story you'll never forget throughout, since you are. Yeah. You mean like dealing with a student? No, actually, like uh, being a researcher, like let's say one experience in a lab. Oh, I got like, it. Yeah. Oh, this is a great one. Yeah. So the one experience that I literally will never forget mm-hmm. was the first original idea that I had that Ooh. I knew oh, was yeah, right before mm. I even did the experiments. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to walk you through this one. Are you guys Go ready? Yeah. So it was late night. Um, my house, my apartment at the time was completely dark. I had mm-hmm. my one desk lamp on. I was reading through scientific papers. At this point, it was a pretty low point in my PhD career. Yeah. My project was not working. And I was trying to understand why the heck is this thing that I'm spending 12 hours a day not working. Yeah. And I had these two papers in front of me. And one was saying MMEJ, this DNA repair pathway, and HDR, the precise gene editing pathway, are related mechanistically. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> and this other paper was talking about the indel outcomes yeah. of Cas9 editing. And putting those two things right in front of me, the light bulb, I felt it go off in my head. Oh, MMEJ is related to HDR. The indels are composed of MMEJ indels. Well, what if MMEJ indels predicts HDR? Mm. I went into the laboratory <laughs> two ah, after that's so cool. literally the ding. Did you guys feel it? Because I'm like reliving it right now yeah, and I got like, goosebumps. Yeah, like, can like, you guys uh, attest that there's goosebumps on my it's arm? It's the apple. It's the Newtonian apple, yes. you know, Whoa. just like. Yeah. So, what that. happened? Two year, after two years of work, I was able to prove that that is the case. Mm. MMEJ in my hands was Whoa. able to predict my hands. HDR, yeah. and I knew I was going to finally graduate. Wow. Oh, my God. That, that feeling is <laughs> just like, yes, I, I feel it right now myself. Wow. Yeah, so I'll never forget that. It's yeah. an addictive feeling yeah. when you find a thread and you want to keep pulling. Yeah. It's Yeah, it's like you're the only person perhaps yes. on Earth for that moment that had that truth exactly. in their mind. Yeah. Exactly. Like a truth of, of reality, like a law of nature itself. Yeah. It's addictive. It's addictive. <laughs> and then you walk into the lab, and of course, you have to be very practical about it. You don't think, you know, how can I prove 
this true. You're we thinking, have to wait two years how can <laughs> to I, prove it. How can I break this? What do I throw yeah. at it to make sure that it breaks? And everything that I threw at it, again, in my hands, I was not able to break that theory. Yeah, yeah. So do you feel like there's any myths in, sci in science? Like, in other words, like, if, are there any unrealistic expectations? You feel like you've been fed throughout your studies and kind of realize that this is actually a myth. It's not true. Oh, yeah. So I think a good one is whenever you're going through academia, <clears throat> the myth is that you're going to be a professor. That's what <laughs> I went into academia thinking <laughs> that I was going to be. Well, I was actually thinking that myself, You were thinking too. that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in reality, mm -hmm. there is so much more complexity out there. And I would yeah. highly recommend PhDs. Actually, don't go into academia. Industry is a beautiful world mm. of experience. And I need to hear that. Thank you for saying Oh, it's that. fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. I mean, you can do so. industry PhDs as well. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Like, there, isn't so, there isn't so many. But yes, there are some of yeah. those. There's more industry postdocs. Um, but the mm. skills that you learn in your PhD, even if you don't take a research scientist position in an industry, you're going to be using those same skills. Like at yeah. this point, I'm a social media content manager. That's my role <laughs> in my company right yeah. now, yeah. in my own company right yeah. now with CRISPR Classroom. And again, I'm applying those same skills that mm. I learned in my PhD because the skills of, you know, high levels of collaboration, um, Critical thinking, communication. Yeah. You learn those in your PhD and they're literally applied yeah. anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right, we're going to be ending, clo I would say closing the interview with this beautiful question that I got from Lou's house. So it's not my original question, but I love it and I would love to ask it. So you've reached the finish line. You've achieved everything you've dreamed of. Your ambitions, goals, family, travel, happiness that you like. You've done it all, okay? Um... And you need to like, you're, you're taking everything with you, but you have to leave three truths, three things for people to remember you or remember your work by. What would they be? Three truths. Yeah. These well, are the only things people can see based on your past experiences. The rest is all gone with you. Interesting. Well, the first one is nothing you do, you're ever going to do alone. Mm -hmm. Quite literally ever. That's doesn't matter what you do. So make sure you find partners and friends and people mm -hmm. to bring you along that journey. So that'd be my first one, is look for those partners. Mm -hmm. Second one is don't be afraid and don't tell yourself no, because other people will tell you no constantly. And this is what I'm experiencing more now that I'm kind of jumping in the entrepreneurial business mm -hmm. side of things. There's tons of people who, and of course, we're in the world now, again, that doesn't have right answers. Yeah. There's tons of people that have advice and mm. opinions, some that even say flat out no, particularly when it comes to investments. But you need to think, I think this is good, mm. and have confidence in yourself mm -hmm. to just not quit. Mm. Nice, and then the nice. third one, yes. I think that I would say is... Last but not least. Know thyself. <laughs> Ooh. Wait, elaborate on that. Sorry, my English is second language. Yeah, know thyself <laughs> is simply whatever you do, make sure if you know yourself, you'll know what to do. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. I love that. Well, it's like wow. be yourself. Everybody yeah. else is yeah. already taken. Exactly. That's another good yeah. one. It's a, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do to know yourself. No. I think we're all still learning and growing and it's changing, but it's, mm. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have one last thing. We took so much time with you, and we're loving this, but we're going to end it with a game. We're calling it the <laughs> okay. one game. It's, the, uh, it's our own original. So a couple of questions where you answer with one thing. So question one. Would Let's be, do a practice one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. 
Okay, we'll give you the first question as a practice. Okay, we'll yeah. save that. Okay. So what is the one thing you hate the most about being a scientist or about scientists? One thing that I hate the yeah. most about being a scientist. Or scientists around you. Um, guy included. You can say guy. <laughs> <laughs> you can only guy. Wow. <laughs> no, no, no. We love you. I don't know. There must be something, but nothing's coming to mind. I love mm. being a scientist. <laughs> um, I this think is why it's a tough question. Yeah, it's a really tough question. I guess around the scientists around me, again, I, I don't like egotistical scientists. So mm -hmm. that's okay. the one thing okay. that I would say. So ego. Ego, say I don't ego like that. Yeah. That's different than confidence. We'll say that. Yeah. I love oh, yeah. confidence. Yeah. Confidence is like, yeah, they're drenched in confidence. Love yeah. that. But ego, no. What is the one habit that you've gained through your research experience? Through the research experience, it'll mm -hmm. be don't quit. Don't quit. Okay. Yeah, don't quit. I mean, I mean, it's a very difficult one because at some points the research is negative and you should quit. Mm. So it's a uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's difficult to know <laughs> when that quit point is. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is the one personality trait that you wish you had? That I wish I had. Yeah. Oh. I honestly, I don't know. The one personality trait that I wish I had. What are some personality traits? How would or, you Or like that a guy? character. I mean, I mean, oh, I know. I wish I could take better notes. Like, oh, wow. I don't <laughs> well, know if that's a personality well, trait. Well, that's I mean, I mean, no, 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 no. It's more like, um, it's like being very, uh, like, 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 I think that really good researchers mm -hmm. are very meticulous people to, like, to insane amounts. And, and like, I'm, I'm I pay attention to detail, but not to the level that like, oh my God, I wish I've yeah. seen some, <laughs> I've seen some intensity. Some people would say like patience, for example. Like mm. I, I have a friend of mine that he's like, I'm not patient. Like I want my experiment to be, to be like, give me something fast. And some experiments may take years. So mm. what would it be for you? And you might say that I'm perfect and I like who I am. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, why not? I do, I do like, like who I am. I, I don't know. And maybe that is something that I would, which I don't know. I, I really don't know exactly what I would change about myself. You're, you're, you're the star. Not change, add. Change, yeah. add, oh, add. Augment. Augment. Something to augment about myself. Um, I don't know. I'm really struggling with this one. Mm. I'd say next question. Okay. I, 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 I <laughs> actually, lost that actually, one. Actually, maybe we should, because this is our first episode. Let's add a pass to this game. Pass. They yeah, can allow get one pass. pass. Okay. That's my pass. So what's That's the, my call a friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's my weakness. What, what should I, what should I do? Out of that seriousness. We got too serious. I'm, I, like, so what's the one pet peeve you have? Like a pet you really want to have? No, it's not a pet, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it then? What is oh it? my god, <laughs> that's so funny. A pet peeve is a pet peeve is something that annoys you. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's like, so that one, that piece cannot be cut out. That needs to <laughs> stay in here. <laughs> yes, please. That was guy's question, so that's I don't know. Very it's not, funny. It's not mine. Um, well, I'll say two things. I would love a German Shepherd, but that's not the question. <laughs> that um, <laughs> oh my, my pet peeve um, is probably when people don't try as hard okay. as that they could. Okay. I don't like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> What's the most common white lie that you do like? Oh, I clean my room. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's the one thing that makes you click with people? Ooh, um, honestly, just flowing conversation, regardless mm. of personality. If you're <laughs> just talking, yeah. then you click. Yeah. What's the one job you would pick other than what you're doing now? Ah, well, I feel like as, as a scientist, I can do anything. Probably the mm -hmm. one thing that I couldn't do is other technical training skill sets. So I'd love to be just an expert engineer and coder, but that's yeah. not something that I've <laughs> at all been trained for. Yeah, yeah. So that would be awesome. 
Alrighty, so good answers, good answers. We'll let you how much we rate you later. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Under the mic. <laughs> Now we're gonna end it with one word and one word you think of when we say that word. It's like a association game. Oh, yeah. okay. CRISPR. Quickly. CRISPR, I think a CRISPR classroom. <laughs> PhD. CRISPR. <laughs> Trojan. USC. <laughs> Passion. Science. Art. Science. Disease. Oh, HIV. <laughs> burrito ah oh, hungry <laughs> guy rocking sci-fi <laughs> oh, oh that's good great answer. Answer. Um, so thank you so much uh, we can go on with this more and more we love talking to you so i want to thank you for being here tonight thank you for giving us your time we love this talk oh yeah Absolutely. it's been super odd this has been super fun um thank you so much for having me oh, and to yeah, everybody in been... this cool recording studio that we're in. <laughs> and of course there's a podcast so you guys listening can't see it but it's awesome there's soundproof stuff on I the know. walls we've got mics and cameras it was it, a pleasure pleasure meeting you pleasure talking to you chris yeah, we thank appreciate you. your time yeah. i'm sure the listeners have learned a lot from your experiences so again thank you so much for being on this show thank you Happy thank to be here. you